I was asked during the break, can you explain who the Synod Fathers are? This chapter 8 starts by talking about the Synod Fathers. That's a good question. There was a worldwide gathering of bishops to pray and think and talk about the family. The situation of the family today in the world and what the church should say about that and do about that. That gathering of bishops is called a synod. S-Y-N-O-D. The bishops who gather are called the synod fathers. And the document that's written after that gathering is called a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. So the synod is the meeting, the fathers are the bishops, and the post-synodal apostolic exhortation is Amoris Laetitia. Familiaris Consortio was written by John Paul II in 1981 after the 1980 Synod on the Family. Okay. Converse number two, the opening question for you is this. Concerning a situation or a person where growth is needed, one, where's the situation starting? Two, where does it need to be? What is the fullness of God's plan for that situation? Three, what are the steps in the process from where it's beginning to where God wants it to be? And four, what's the best way to help take the next step? It's not going to go from the situation to the goal all at once. There are going to be like ten steps there. What's the first next step? And what method? It's not just what needs to happen, but how do you say it? And what's the right time to have an intervention on that? And who's the right messenger for that intervention? What you say, how you say it, when you say it, and who says it all matter. So there's a whole other conference to be had about all of those elements of taking even one step in the process. Those are for you to ponder. Are we recording? Are we on? Okay. Back to the roadmap for a deeper dive. So I'm going to give you some further examples from the text to help you think about this. First, let's go back to the goal section of your handout. Paragraph 59. The mystery of the Christian family can be fully understood only in the light of the Father's infinite love revealed in Christ. Notice that language. What is the goal here? The goal is fully understanding. And the mystery of the Christian family or the mystery of any individual or any relationship can only be fully understood in the light of the Father's infinite love which is revealed in Christ. If you abandon that, you have abandoned the discipleship roadmap according to the gospel. Paragraph 62 
The Gospels clearly present the example of Jesus who proclaimed the meaning of marriage as the fullness of revelation that restores God's original plan. There it is. And people are saying, well, Pope Francis seems to be changing church teaching. No, there you have it. The gospel clearly presents the example of Jesus who proclaimed the meaning of marriage as the fullness of revelation that restores God's original plan. There it is. That's the goal. And if we depart from that, we're not on the discipleship roadmap according to the gospel anymore. Paragraph 63, the spousal covenant originating in creation and revealed in the history of salvation takes on its full meaning in Christ and his church. So if you have some concept of the spousal covenant that's not consistent with the account of creation or salvation history or Christ and the church, you're not on the discipleship roadmap anymore. You're doing your own thing. The fullness of God's plan for marriage is clearly set out in this document. It's all over the document, although I'll stop there for now. In every instance, the goal is characterized by its fullness. In authentic accompaniment, we never abandon that fullness. If you abandon that, you're not on the roadmap anymore. Next, let's look at the situation. We'll return to the situation. We'll start with paragraph 79. Go ahead and find that. It's on the second page. When faced with difficult situations and wounded families, difficult situations and wounded individuals, wounded relationships, wounded workplaces, and so on and so forth, it is always necessary to recall this general principle Pastors must know that for the sake of truth, they are obliged to exercise careful discernment of situations. Not setting aside the truth, but for the sake of the truth. I need to know what the truth is, and I need to know what this situation is in great detail. Because if I don't know it, how can I help it move toward the truth? That's why I need to ask a bunch of questions about this situation. Because I need to know how is God's grace at work here and how is sin at work here so that I can help you take the next step. So that I know that the next step that I propose to you, although it may not get you all the way, is a step toward that fullness that we've talked about. Paragraphs 202 and 203, speaking right to the heart of what happens in the seminary. In the replies given to the worldwide consultation, it became clear that ordained ministers often lack the training needed to deal with the complex problems currently facing families. Seminarians, therefore, should receive a more extensive interdisciplinary and not merely doctrinal formation in the areas of engagement and marriage. In other words, with a seminarian, you can't just give them a class on marriage saying, this is what the church teaches about marriage, and then say, go, form couples for marriage. It's not enough. It's messy, okay? So what do we do? At, the, at Kenrick Glennon Seminary, yes, they take a theology of marriage class in which we lay out the church's teaching on marriage 
in all its beautiful fullness. They also have pastoral counseling, advanced pastoral counseling, marriage, family, and sexuality, marriage preparation, NFP certification, grief counseling. We give them an interdisciplinary training and not merely a doctrinal training because we know that they're going to face messy situations. And while knowing the fullness of the teaching, they're going to need to be able to help people take one baby step at a time toward that. Paragraphs 23 through 30 is a great pattern in the document. Pope Francis is constantly, just read paragraphs 23 through 30 at some point. I don't have them on there because there's too much to ask of you. But he's constantly going, here's the ideal, here's the mess. Here's the ideal, here's the mess. Here's the ideal, here's the mess. At the beginning of the document, so let me just give you two examples of this. Paragraph 23, at the beginning of Psalm 128, the father appears as a laborer who, by the work of his hands, sustains the physical well-being and tranquility of his family. It's lovely. Paragraph 25, this having been said, we can appreciate the suffering created by unemployment and a lack of steady work. Here, Psalm 128 presents this beautiful picture of the father as the worker sustaining the family. And then there's unemployment. And what are you going to do with that? See, he sees them both at the same time. Okay? This is great. Paragraph 29, he's talking about the family. With a gaze of faith and love, grace and fidelity, we have contemplated the relationship between human families and the divine trinity. The word of God tells us that the family is entrusted to a man, a woman, and their children so that they may become a communion of persons in the image of the union of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful, and he sees that. See, when we're talking about the family, the human family is a living image of the Holy Trinity. It's not just about three. It's about relationships where everyone is one with one another. That's lovely. Then he says in paragraph 30, every family should look to the icon of the Holy Family of Nazareth. Yeah, that's beautiful too. Its daily life had its share of burdens and even nightmares. What? The Holy Family? Yeah, for example, as when they met with Herod's implacable violence and they had to flee because the ruler of the land was trying to kill their child. This was an experience that, sad to say, continues to afflict many refugee families. Here's the beauty of what the family is supposed to be, and here's the mess at every border around the world where there are tyrants. See, he sees both of those at the same time. He knows that that's the situation. Look, there are lots of other examples, but my point is just, there it is. It's all over the document. I'll stop there for now, but in every... In every instance, the situation is characterized by its messiness and its complexity. As I said before, this method is always clear on what's the fullness of the goal and what's the messiness and complexity of the human situation. But sometimes it's hard to see both. But the best ministers always see both. And accompaniment requires 
that we see both and never abandon either. If you abandon the fullness of the goal, you're not using the discipleship roadmap the way Jesus used it. If you abandon the messiness of the situation and refuse to see its complexity, you're not using the discipleship roadmap the way Jesus used it. How about the path? Well, let's look under the path section of your handout, paragraph 78. Seeing things with the eyes of Christ. Just, just pause there and, and relish that phrase. Seeing things with the eyes of Christ. That's the goal. And then speaking with the words of Christ rooted in the heart of Christ. Seeing things with the eyes of Christ inspires the church's pastoral care for the faithful who are living together or are only married civilly or are divorced and remarried or are living in a gay relationship and so on and so forth. You can multiply the examples, right? What does he mean? Following this divine pedagogy. What's the divine pedagogy? The way God teaches. Following the way God teaches, the church turns with love to those who participate in her life in um, an imperfect manner. He's uh, speaking euphemisms here, isn't he? He's speaking delicately. And if you read St. Augustine, who wrote on marriage in the 400s, Augustine spoke very delicately of exactly all the situations we see today. How does the church turn toward those who live her life in an imperfect manner? First of all, with love. And if you don't turn toward them with love, the game is over. They won't hear you. They will read your heart. They will see it in your eyes. They will hear it in the tone of your voice. And they won't be listening anymore. So you turn to them with love. What does she seek for them? She seeks the grace of conversion for them. Because the church knows that they're not living the fullness of God's plan. Hey, listen, you know that I love you. And you know I understand this situation that you're living in. But you know and I know that this is not the fullness of God's plan. And so I seek the grace of conversion for you. And it may take 10 or 15 years of prayer before you can say it to them. Or you may be able to say it to them right away. I don't know what the right timing is. But the first thing the church does is turns to them in love. And the next thing the church does is seeks their conversion. She encourages them to do good. Listen, you may not be going to get up here to the goal right away, but I see this which is good in your life, and I see this which could be better. So I encourage you to do good here. To take loving care of each other. Because that's certainly on the path toward the goal. This relationship may not be the fullness of God's plan for anyone, but while you're stuck in the midst of it, you can take good care of each other to serve the community in which they live and work. Are you thinking beyond yourselves? Because if you're not, that's not the fullness of God's plan for you either. When a couple in an irregular union attains a noteworthy stability through a public bond, you have to think of Argentina, right? And think of what was happening in the Hispanic culture of Argentina in the time when he was a bishop. He's seeing this, and we see this in the United States, not just in Hispanic culture, but all over the place. 
people live together, right? They don't get married. They don't use NFP, and so on and so forth. When the couple in an irregular union, which is not the fullness of God's plan, attains a noteworthy stability, they're, they're doing pretty well on several fronts. And their bond is characterized by deep affection and responsibility towards the children and the ability to overcome trials. This can be seen as an opportunity, where possible, to lead them to celebrate the sacrament of matrimony because that's the next step towards the fullness of what God wants for them. Hey, you guys should get married. Why? Because there are graces there. How do you know? Because I've experienced them. I may or may not have experienced the grace of marriage. My own marriage may have fallen apart, but I know there are graces there for you. Can you name grace as a reality for them? See, there it all is, right? Paragraph 211. The pastoral care of engaged and married couples involves not only helping them to accept the church's teaching. Here, this is the church's teaching. Do you accept that? Yes, I accept that. I'm having a hard time living it. <laughs> okay? They have recourse to her valuable resources. Well, come to confession. Yes, I, I will come to confession but also offering practical programs, sound advice, proven strategies, psychological guidance. Maybe what you need is a marriage counselor, not just another trip to confession. Confession is good and should not be neglected, and it's part of the grace of the path. But maybe you need counseling. Maybe that's part of the path, too. Marriage preparation should also provide couples with the names of places, people, and services to which they can turn for help when problems arise. Because marriage preparation will propose to them the fullness of God's plan for marriage and all its grandeur. And then they'll live in it for about two years and it'll start to come apart in different ways. And then they're going to need help. And what they need is a lactation consultant what they need is someone to come and watch the kids so they can get a two-hour nap, right? And so on and so forth, okay? Paragraph 221. This is beautiful. Each marriage is a kind of salvation history. How is the salvation history of the Old Testament, the Israelite, the people? Straight path to union with God, right? Not so much. Wandered all over the place. Sounds like my history. Sounds like my family. Each marriage is a kind of salvation history, which from fragile beginnings, like the Israelites, thanks to God's gift and a creative and generous response on our part, it did start off well, didn't it? Grows over time into something precious and enduring. Love is thus a kind of craftsmanship. At every new stage, the couple can keep forming one another. Love makes each wait for the other with the patience of a craftsman, a patience which comes from God. And that applies not only to married couples, but to every one of us and every person we encounter. Every one of those people, their history is like a salvation history of their relationship with God. And it takes some good turns and some bad turns. You think about what happens when you're sculpting and you make a mistake and you have to go back and fix it. That takes time and energy. That's true in relationships as well. Pope Francis is aware of that. He's talking about all of that. 
Pastoral care is like a kind of craftsmanship. So in summary, the path is characterized by its gradualness. By the way, all of that is drawn from Familiaris Consortio. And if you look at the path on uh, paragraph 295 in your quotations, you'll see what John Paul II had to say about it. Here's how Pope Francis quotes him. Along these lines, St. John Paul II proposed the so-called law of gradualness. And the knowledge that the human being knows, loves, and accomplishes moral good by different stages of growth. This is not a gradualness of the law. Like, this is the fullness of God's plan, but that's not for you. What we're proposing for you is something else. No, no, no. The, the fullness is the fullness. The goal is the goal. Jesus' teaching is Jesus' teaching. It's for each person. But you'll probably get there, step by step. But rather a gradualness of the prudential exercise of free acts on the part of subjects who are not in a position to understand or appreciate or fully carry out the objective demands of the law. What if that's not possible for me right now? either physically or morally or psychologically. Okay, then what's the next step for you? What's the next right thing to do? Then that's what God is asking you to do. It's not that he's not asking this of you. It's not that he doesn't intend this for you. And it's not that you're already there just because you're doing what you feel like you can do. But you do the next right thing. And let God draw you there gradually, just like he did with Israel. For the law is itself a gift of God, which points out the way. A gift for everyone without exception. This fullness, this ideal, that's for everyone. For no one do you set that aside and say, well, that doesn't apply to you because you're attracted to people of the same sex, so God doesn't want that for you. No, that is the fullness This is what he wants for everyone without exception. So the law is a gift of God, points out the way, a gift for everyone. It can be followed with the help of grace, even though each human being advances gradually with the progressive integration of the gifts of God and the demands of God's definitive and absolute love in his or her entire entire personal and social life. God wants it all. You'll get there gradually. I was talking with someone about a seminarian who had come out to their parish and just made his speech for the Christmas appeal and other than that, didn't really want to talk to anyone. Okay, listen, if you're going to be a diocesan priest, that's, that's not good enough. That's where you are right now. You're young and you're tender. But you need to grow. And if you can't grow into loving and interaction with the people and being energized by that, then the parish priesthood is probably not for you. We need to hold the guy for downs on that. But, you know, when he's 18 years old, he's not there yet. So we have a whole process of formation to help him get there and say, what are the signs and what's the next step for you? The next time you go out and do this, Hang around in the vestibule and interact with the people. Good, you went out there and did it. That's a great first step. What's the right next step for your growth? And eventually, we'll have, you see these guys when they're ordained. They're marvelous. They love being with the people. It energizes them. They've suffered the process of growth. We have suffered 
the process of their growth. <laughs> their parents have suffered the process of their growth. Okay? And, and we do suffer it, but they get there. And so each seminarian's history is a sort of salvation history. Well, my point is this. In proposing all that, Pope Francis is just building on what John Paul II did in Familiaris Consortio. Well, of course, that's paragraph 295. Lots of people didn't make it that far in the document. Okay? But there it is. So authentic accompaniment is shaped by this awareness that there is a goal and it's full. It's all that God desires. And there's a situation and it's really messy and it's not all that God desires. And there's a path. And if it's not slow, it's not human. How long did it take the Israelites to catch on that there was only one God? Hundreds of years it took them to catch on. Well, again, it's intriguing and it makes a certain amount of intuitive sense and pastoral sense. But again, the question arises, where is this coming from? Is Pope Francis... I guess he's not making it up because there it sort of was in John Paul II. Where did he get it? Let's take a deeper look. I showed you already that it's in Scripture. The next question is, is it also in tradition? Well, open your catechisms, please. To paragraph 53. We're just going to have a romp through the catechism for a little while. So this in your catechism, paragraph 53. The divine plan of revelation, God's got a plan, is realized simultaneously by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other and shed light on each other. We dealt with that a long time ago in Christology and the Trinity. Remember, the words and the deeds of Jesus reveal his identity. The words and the deeds of the apostles after Pentecost reveal the identity of the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. It involves a specific divine pedagogy. This is how God teaches. God communicates himself to man gradually. He prepares him to welcome by stages the supernatural revelation that is to culminate in the person and mission of Jesus Christ. In other words, God has a plan. Here's the fullness of revelation, Jesus Christ. That's not where people are. So God puts together a plan of gradual revelation to bring them to that point step by step. There it is at the beginning of the catechism. And if you turn to the next part, do you see what the heading is? The stages of revelation. And it simply lays them out. God makes himself known. The covenant with Noah. God chooses Abraham. God forms his people Israel. And so on and so forth. There's a whole progressive path there. So there it is in the catechism. I've already shown you that it's there in Familiaris Consortio. But let's do this. Please turn to paragraph 287. This is lovely. I love this one. It's not my favorite, but I love it. The truth about creation is so important for all of human life that God, in his tenderness, wanted to reveal to his people 
everything that is salutary to know on the subject. Everything. God wanted to reveal to us the fullness of what we needed to know about creation. Beyond the natural knowledge that every man can have of the Creator, God progressively revealed to Israel the mystery of creation. There it is. Well, I thought he just revealed that in the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, but when was that part written? See, that's not written down until the exile. The Israelites gradually came to realize the truth about that and wrote it down in poetic form and said, this needs to go first, even though we realized it late. Thus, paragraph 288, the revelation of creation is inseparable from the revelation and forging of the covenant. Well, we just looked at the stages of the revelation of the covenant, didn't we? How many covenants are there? God makes a covenant with Adam, makes a covenant with Noah, makes a covenant with Abraham, makes a covenant with Moses, makes a covenant with David. Right? So the covenant unfolds over time, and through that time, he's revealing the truth about creation. And so the truth of creation is expressed with growing vigor in the message of the prophets, the prayer of the Psalms and the liturgy, and in the wisdom sayings of the chosen people. God reveals it to them progressively, and they catch on progressively. And anybody who's a teacher knows this. Look, I said these things to you clearly from the start, although you didn't actually begin to hear them until three months into class. But if you go back into your notes, you'll see that it was there from the beginning. Okay? Paragraph 684. This is my favorite. On this topic, anyways. There we go. Beautiful. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory the theologian, explains this progression in terms of the pedagogy of divine condescension. What progression? He's talking about the revelation of the Trinity. Listen to this. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly and when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden to speak somewhat daringly. By advancing and progressing from glory to glory, the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays. The Trinity was revealed to us progressively. Why didn't God just come down and reveal the Trinity right from the start? Wouldn't that have been a good idea? Oh, no. I'll talk about that in about five minutes, why that would have been a disastrous idea. But the fact of the matter is, the Trinity is revealed to us progressively. First, just that there's one God. That's what they know in the Old Testament. And then the Son is revealed. And he starts speaking of one who's Father. Now there are two of them? Oh, but wait, there's more. And then when he leaves, the Holy Spirit comes. There are three of them. Wow. But he told that to us one step at a time, because that's all we could take. If he had told that to us all right from the start, we would have exploded. 
Paragraph 992. This is lovely and somewhat startling. God revealed the resurrection of the dead to his people progressively. Wait, didn't he reveal it all at once in Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. See, that was the answer to a question. But they already had the question of whether or not there might be a resurrection from the dead. And in the earliest time of Israel's history, they simply didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You lived, you died, you went to the shades, that was it. There was no resurrection. At what point and for what reason did the question of the resurrection from the dead come into play? So that when they had the question, Jesus came to give them the answer. And that's part of what it means that he came in the fullness of time. God was waiting for them to have the question. Well, there's a whole theology behind that. It would take me 45 minutes to lay that out. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say the catechism says very clearly, God revealed the reality of the resurrection progressively to his people and then put an exclamation point on it in Jesus. By the way, all that stuff that I've been building up, I meant that. You don't believe me, so I'm going to show you. But once I show you, you can look back and see that it was there all along. Paragraph 2607. Let me wrap it up with this one. 2607, we go to the section on prayer. Just to show, and part of the point here is to show you, it's not only at the beginning of the catechism, it's at the very end of the catechism as well. 2607. When Jesus prays, he is already teaching us how to pray. Listen to the divine pedagogy. How does Jesus teach us how to pray? His prayer to his Father is the theological path of our prayer to God. There's the path already. Here's our situation. We don't know how to pray. Here's the goal. He wants us to know how to pray. His prayer is the path by which we rise to where he wants us to be. But the gospel also gives us Jesus' explicit teaching on prayer. Like a wise teacher... He takes hold of us where we are and leads us progressively toward the Father. Well, think of a difficult situation that you're facing. What does it mean to take hold of someone where they are and lead them progressively toward the fullness of what God wants for them? Addressing the crowds following him, Jesus builds on what they already know of prayer from the Old Covenant. Well, here's what you already know. Here's where grace is already at work in your life. This is how you're already praying, and that's beautiful, and that's good. So let me build on that. And opens to them the newness of the coming kingdom. How does he open it to them? Then he reveals this newness to them in parables. He tells them stories. Why? Because they're not ready for the explicit teaching yet. So he tells them stories to prepare their imaginations for it. Finally, he will speak openly of the Father and the Holy Spirit to his disciples, but not to the crowd, because the crowd's not ready for it. And what the disciples need is to hear it, but then they will learn it best by teaching it to others. So Jesus gives it to them and says, now I want you to teach this who will be the teachers of prayer in his church. 
There it is. That's the whole discipleship roadmap in paragraph 2607. Jesus uses the discipleship roadmap method when he teaches prayer and the catechism lays it out. But wait, <clears throat> there's more. <laughs> oh, sorry, should have put that up for you. Oops, I got excited. Still excited. Listen, this is the pattern of all salvation history. Salvation history moves from one holy couple to one holy family, to one holy tribe, to one holy nation, to one holy kingdom, to one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Thank you, Jeff Cavins, for laying that out for us. But there it is. That's how salvation history moves. God begins with a fragile, tender beginning. Just two people. And he knows where he wants salvation history to be. But he doesn't try to get there all at once. He unfolds it one step at a time. Here, this is as much as you can take. Let's take the next step. Let's take the next step. Now, just dwell in that grace for a little while. In fact, this is a theme for the Feast of the Assumption. Read the readings for the Feast of the Assumption, August 15th. And it starts out with the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a, a thing. It's an object. And then in the New Testament, the Ark of the Covenant is a person, Mary. She is the place where God dwells. But that's only one person. And then you read the Gospel reading for the day, and Jesus says, Blessed is everyone who hears the word of God and observes it. So the Ark of the Covenant goes from being a thing which holds the presence of God to one person who holds the presence of God to every person can hold the presence of God because that's how God moves one step at a time. Or think of the theme for the dedication of the Lateran Basilica on November 9th. And the Old Testament reading is about the temple, the physical temple of the Old Testament. And then the gospel is about Christ being the new temple. And then the reading from St. Paul says to us, do you not know that you are God's temple? The temple was a thing. And then the temple was one person's body. And then the temple is everyone who is within the body of Christ. Because that's how God moves, one step at a time. He knows where he wants it to be. He knows it's not there yet. He knows how to get it there gradually. This is, how, this is the pattern of how God works. He knows where people are. He knows where he wants them to be. He sets out a path from where they are to where he wants them to be. And he's patient as the path unfolds. Ah, so let's return to this. Why not reveal the Trinity right from the start? Well, where are the people living at the beginning of the Old Testament time? They're polytheists. They believe that there are multiple gods. And so if God comes and reveals to them the Trinity at that point, they'll just think there are three gods, three more gods. So that's not the step he takes with them because they're not ready for it because their heads will explode. What does he do? You see, the first step he takes is actually to say, okay, look, listen, here's the deal. 
I will be your God, and you will be my people. You will be the people of Yahweh, and Yahweh will be the God of Israel. If you read the Old Testament, you can see they still believe that other gods exist. But they say, but, but Yahweh is our God, so we will be faithful to him, because that's like a marriage. And only gradually does he show them, he, he lets them get comfortable in that relationship. Okay, you're our God, we're your people. The other people have their gods, but those are not the gods for us. And he gradually shows them, by words and deeds, that there are no other gods. He is the only God. And it's a beautiful study of the Old Testament to see how he does that. I'm not going to get into it right now. That's another 45-minute conference as well. Okay? But you can see this in the Old Testament, can't you? How they go from believing that there are multiple gods and Yahweh is theirs to believing that Yahweh is the only God. And then he lets them get comfortable in that. And that's all about the exile. About the time of the exile, it catches on for all of them. The prophets have been telling them this for 200 years, 300 years at that point. But it didn't catch on for all of them till the exile. And he lets them dwell in this new knowledge and deepen it. And only when they've deepened it for a while does he say, by the way, there is only one of me, but I have a son. And so actually there are two of us. And then he reveals the Trinity. But then they know that these three persons are three persons in one God. And that's a complex concept. And they couldn't handle it before, but now they're ready for it. And then it takes the church like 300 years to figure out the doctrine after it's been revealed. He does the same thing with morality, right? Look, Jesus comes and he says, turn the other cheek. And the rabbis say, wait a minute, that's not what Moses said. Moses said, take an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How is that consistent? And if you only saw those two things, you would think Jesus had contradicted Moses. But go back to where they started out. Where were they? What is the fallen condition of man? It's what my grandmother told me. If somebody hits you, you hit them back twice as hard. It's the law of escalating violence, the lex talionis, the law of revenge. And you see this when baseball players get into a fight or hockey players or basketball players. One guy pushes another, so the other guy punches him back. So then the other guy's teammate comes and joins, and pretty soon there's a huge scrum and they're all suspended. What is that? That's the law of escalating violence. Into which God said, listen, if I tell you to turn the other cheek at that point, you're not going to be able to hear it. So let me just give you the next step. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was a negative precept. No more than an eye for an eye. No more than a tooth for a tooth. You can take that, but no more. And then when Jesus comes in, he says, yeah, that, that was true, and, and that was the right step for you then. But let me take you the final step. If someone asks for your cloak, give him your coat as well. If he asks you to go with him one mile, go two miles. And if he strikes you on your right cheek, turn and offer him your left as well. See, it's a progression, step by step. And God is content with imperfect progress. He's leading us toward more fullness. But he took these steps. I'm not even getting into yet the development of doctrine, which also works this way. 
Please turn to paragraph 1117 of the Catechism. See, there it is in section two of the Catechism as well. I won't go too far into this. I just want to note that it says this. As she has done for the canon of sacred scripture and for the doctrine of the faith, the church, by the power of the spirit who guides her into all truth, has gradually recognized this treasure received from Christ and as faithful steward of God's mysteries has determined its dispensation. Thus the church has discerned over the centuries that among liturgical celebrations there are seven that are, in the strict sense of the term, sacraments instituted by the Lord. You know when that's finally defined? In the 1100s we finally define what the seven sacraments are. So the church gradually realizes the truth which God has gradually presented. In fact, just to show you that we can go further on this, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman wrote an entire book on the development of doctrine. This is a lovely book. Okay, so there's more that you can learn about it. Let me pause and gather up all of that momentum for this moment. Somebody have a watch. I want you to time me. I'm going to read this section from Mark 10 about the rich young man. I want you to tell me how long this takes. Ready, go. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He replied and said to him, Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You are lacking in one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Stop. How long did that take? 55 seconds. From the largest scale of thousands of years of salvation history down to the shortest interaction of 55 seconds. God follows a roadmap method. This is the divine pedagogy referred to in paragraph 53 of the Catechism. He knows where he wants the young man to be. He knows where the young man is. He knows what to ask to pierce his heart and invite him to take the next step. And he's willing to let him walk away and decide for himself whether he wants to walk that path. Jesus will accompany him, but he will not force him. Jesus will invite him. He will not shame him, but he will raise the bar. Pope Francis is not making this up. He's just drawing our attention to it 
and asking us to apply it to pastoral ministry. His whole pastoral method is based on an application of this line of reasoning for which I claim we have abundant evidence in scripture and in tradition. We don't hear much about it. We don't often think about this gradualism of God's pedagogy. And that's why some people find it confusing when Pope Francis articulates it. But it's a pattern that's deeply rooted in our tradition. One that we need to hear about and one that we need to put into practice. Now I have to say, this method is not always perfectly applied. Not by pastors, not even by the Pope. I think we're still learning to use it properly. And so is he. But this is a pattern in salvation, or in, in theological history, in church history. Somebody lays out a brilliant ideal, doesn't fully realize it, and it's the task of the next generation to perfect it. As a template, it's brilliant. It's worth learning to use it properly. Teachers use this with students moving at different speeds. Suppose I am a second grade teacher and I'm teaching my second graders reading and I have 30 kids in my classroom. How many different situations am I beginning from? That would be 30. <laughs> I know where I want those second graders to end up in their reading level. I know what's the minimum they all need to achieve. I need to take each kid's situation and say, what's the next step for you on the way to that goal? And for some kids, it's easy. Here, read these three books. You're done. With another kid, you've got to sit down and sound out the words. Right? That's how it is. Coaches use this with athletes at different developmental levels. In fact, the entire national lacrosse community in the United States has developed what's called the LADM, the Lacrosse Athlete Development Model. And they're implementing it on all levels. You know, if you have kids who played hockey, there's a point at which they're not allowed to do any checking because they're not ready to check. And then there's a point at which they learn how to do it. And then there's a point at which it's full speed ahead. But you have to lead them to that point. When, when you're trying to get your five-year-olds to win the soccer game at all costs, that is not developmentally appropriate. So lacrosse has this development model that they're implementing. It's brilliant. But it's a tremendous theological thing to think about. It's a tremendous spiritual thing to apply to ourselves. It's a tremendous pastoral thing to apply to our ministry. So here's what I want to say as I wrap this section up. Not because there's not more to say, but because that's all the momentum we can generate right now. Next we need to go pray. This pattern, this template, situation, path, goal, the discipleship roadmap, is there in the document one by one. He talks about the goal. He talks about the situation. 
He talks about the path. He talks about all three of them together. It's there in the document, point by point. It's there in the document, all together. It's part of the theological tradition of the Catholic Church. It's embedded in the gospel. It's the sweep of all salvation history. It's really helpful to apply that to how we walk with people, to our accompaniment of them. That doesn't mean I think everything about the document is peachy. I don't. It doesn't mean I think everything about the interpretation of the document is peachy. I don't. I don't think Catholic commentators in the United States on the left or on the right have got this document right. There are some rough spots in the document itself, as there will be when you're laying out something for the first time publicly. But I think the pastoral method is right on. And I think it'd be really helpful for you to know it in your pastoral ministry. I think there's a lot that needs to be cleaned up as we learn how to use it. Think about shoveling snow. I know we don't get a lot of snow here in St. Louis, but I grew up in Green Bay. We got a lot of snow. I lived in Michigan. We got a lot of snow. We do get snow in St. Louis. And when you've had a big snowfall, like 10 inches or so, you shovel a path out. And is the path perfect when you shovel it out? No, you shovel out the beginning of the path and then you have to go back and clean it up, right? And then lay the salt down. Well, what Pope Francis did in this document was he shoveled a path. What I'm trying to do is just go back and sweep it up so that then you can lay salt on it and make it clean and we can all put it to use. So... These are the questions I want you to ponder. How does the discipleship roadmap apply to your life? Don't go applying it to other people first. (laughs) Apply it to yourself. What is the goal that Jesus intends for you? And what is your situation? And what is the path that he's been walking you on gradually through your whole life? And what is the next step he wants you to take? And then you can ask the question, how does the discipleship roadmap apply to your ministry, your interactions with other people? And in the afternoon, we'll come back and I'll have even more to say about the ministry part. How do we walk with other people?